Hey, thanks for stopping by. My name is Josh, Buddhist pastor, Dharma Punks, New York, since 2005, 17th year, having the honor of giving these weekly Dharma talks. And um, for those of you new, welcome. The general format is I ramble on for about 35 minutes generally on some subject or another. And then there's a meditation where we explore some of the tools, Buddhist insights, therapeutic modalities, whatever we've been discussing, we put it into practice. And then at the end, there's an encouragement to ask questions so that we can have more of a dialogue. And then uh, that's it. And if you would be uh, interested in supporting the work of a Buddhist pastor who lives entirely by donations, all everything I do, the teaching and the counseling and all that, is entirely by donation, as is the 2,500-year-old tradition. The Benmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC, so thanks for that. That's the entirety of my spiel. And now... Uh, what are we talking about tonight? What have we got on the agenda? Well, I should know that because I've been thinking a lot about it. It's mindfulness and communication or skillful communication. And tonight we're going to be focusing on ways to communicate through uh, conflicts or also to convey needs, set boundaries, difficult conversations, conversations that are important and just maintaining secure attachment and friendships. So we are all born prematurely. Yes, we are. We are born defenseless years and years before we can uh, survive on our own. And so the core drive uh, that animates us from birth is to connect for security, to express our needs for food, water, warmth, care. We also connect to regulate our nervous systems so that in distress we can be soothed down to a state of ease so that we can sleep and digest. If we're constantly in a state of threat, all of those important capabilities go by the wayside. And we also attach to others for uh, learning how to develop the capabilities that will allow us to forge important relationships and to survive and thrive in the world. So we seek modeling from others. Again, the core needs are for security to express our needs, to regulate our nervous system. And initially, all of those needs are conveyed through nonverbal means, by touch, by eye contact, by facial expressions. As children, we cry and wail when attachment is withheld or attunement or attention is withheld if our caregivers 
lose or not lose interest in us, but pay attention to something else. We make attachment cries and uh, we also establish connection through gestures and body movements. And we express delight and, and laughter when eye contact is positive and we feel a sense of safety. So all this means that connection is fundamentally nonverbal and innate. It's not cognitive. It's not based in language and at first. And while we eventually in adult life try to establish our connections through language, the dominant way we form impressions about others and convey uh, our self to others remains nonverbal throughout the entirety of our life. As Bowlby, the great psychologist, said, from cradle to grave, uh, we are expressing nonverbally who we are, what we need, um, what our, we're experiencing through nonverbal means. And many, many contemporary uh, important uh, psychologists and neuropsychologists, such as Alan Shore and Dan Siegel and so many others, um, oh, I can't remember her name of sensory motor psychotherapy and so many others talk about how fundamental nonverbal communication is to sustaining relationships. We are in fact prime, primed by evolution to make snap judgments about another person's intentions, what they, how they regard us, without relying on words. In fact, for the bulk of human evolution, there was an excellent chance that people you would encounter would not be able to express themselves in the same language. It's only a rather recent development that uh, in our you know, species that we share uh, similar languages that can convey attentions. But over the course of our evolution, we were, are primed to make uh, judgments about another person's friendliness and utility without relying on words. And we don't even realize we're doing it but it's fundamental to how we establish our impressions of others. And it remains nonverbal in so many ways. Imagine yourself meeting a friend at a coffee shop and your friend storms in, doesn't make eye contact, doesn't acknowledge you, stares out the window, but when you ask, says, I'm fine. So what do you believe? <laughs> Do you believe they're fine? Or do you give primary weight to all the nonverbal cues that are telling you otherwise? Well, of course, you would conclude that something has angered them, that they're in a state of resentment or ongoing agitation, and you wouldn't believe or take into account their verbal utterance. You, you might understand simply from it that they don't want to talk about it, but you wouldn't believe that they were fine. And 
throughout the courses of our relationships and friendships, we are far more keyed into the nonverbal signals uh, to get a sense of how we stand in relationship to others. As a social species, we are forever anxious about the status of our tribal bonds. In fact, we have a dedicated region of the anterior cingulate cortex, which you knew, uh, fundamentally, which is focused on how other people regard us. And wonderful studies by Naomi Eisenberger and um, I think, well, I don't remember, maybe Stanford, I can't remember which California University, where she developed a program that simply uh, removes attention from an individual. And in fMRI scans, you can see the anterior cingulate cortex lighting up the moment people stop making eye contact or regarding us. It's actually done with a game that was programmed, but uh, when the anterior cingulate cortex lights up, the serotonin levels eventually drop. We stop feeling secure. We become anxious. We Many different uh, processes start up. So we're anxious about our tribal bond, and we have a fundamental need in social interactions outside of work to disclose our internal states, which means our affects and our emotions to others to receive what's called mirroring, which is not someone saying, oh, I feel exactly the same way you do, but actually their facial expressions, their body language, their tone of voice in some way mirrors back or reflects back the emotional state you're in. There's nothing more discordant than expressing something vulnerable and having someone in a flat tone say, oh, that sounds very hard. That doesn't, you don't believe it. You won't, uh, it won't in any way make you feel alleviated. And we express our internal states to others primarily through all these affects, these gestures, our body language, our tone of voice, and then finally through language, because we're anxious that our feelings and emotions might lead to social rejection or loneliness or abandonment. And so we are primed by, uh, as a social species, to constantly, even though we're not aware of it, disclose through talking about stories, talking about our days, talking about things that have created an emotional response, we talk because while we're doing that, we're displaying our emotions and unconsciously we are seeking people to mirror back those emotions so that we feel safe in the way we are responding to life that other people will accept the way that we are processing the events of our day. So when emotions are met and mirrored by others, when people pay attention, when their affects, if we're sad, their affects change to one of concern, or if we're happy and joyous, they smile and express delight, then what happens is our autonomic nervous systems are switched into what's called ventral parasympathetic, which is simply, uh, as Porges notes, social engage. We can rest, 
we can joke, we can, our serotonin levels go back up, our anterior cingulate cortex stops um, being active in terms of expecting abandonment or rejection or anything like that, our amygdala's rest and our cognitive prefrontal function starts to uh, light up so that we become capable of making thoughtful, funny, uh, thinking outside of the box, we can really develop wonderful experiences with another human being. But all of that depends on what's called the unconscious uh, conveying and receiving attunement or attention and mirroring from another. As Porges says, it's based on what's called neuroception, which means unconsciously, as we're connecting with any other human being, the first thing that we're looking for is what's known as right brain to right brain. How are they um, non-verbally responding? Are they, is their bodies orienting towards us? Are they making eye contact? Are their emotions in some way reflecting us? Are their gestures friendly? and so on and so forth. Uh, one uh, clinical psychologist, Linda Graham, notes that when another person is available and emotionally attuned and empathetic um, and reciprocally communicating through us, through gestures and expressions, everything from joy, happiness, and connection becomes possible. Um, yet by the time we are adults, we sadly rely more and more uh, in exclusively text-based, email, non, non, uh, primarily word-based communications. We very often, when we're connecting with people, sometimes you'll see people sitting at tables, each person looking at a iPhone or uh, smart, you know, a, a phone not engaging with each other, just uh, talking without actually making eye contact. And what this does is limit human connection to left hemisphere dominant processes, which tend to one separate us because the left hemisphere is interested in what sets us apart. It's not primarily attachment focused. The left hemisphere is primarily focused on uh, one, expressing ideas only, but not in any way securing emotionally rich interpersonal interactions. It's disembodied, it's thought-centered, it's unaware of feelings, and it's in no way can make people feel um, understood. In fact, when studies are done of people trying to seek attachment through or connection through uh, non-interpersonal direct interactions, there's very little, if any, affect regulation that occurs. If you post something and people say, that's great, it will raise your dopamine levels for a short period, but serotonin, forget about it. It's not going to go up. So, um, and when in interconnections with people, 
our words are received with critical or judgmental remarks, it actually can activate the sympathetic nervous system, which keeps us in hyperarousal agitation. It escalates affects, but words are alone are not uh, enormously effective in down-regulating. They can cause attachment wounds, but in terms of repair, not as successful to say the least. Gottman, the one of the most important couples therapists and uh, clinicians on uh, in terms of interpersonal attachment, notes that when couples and friends respond to each other's bids for attention, bids for attention is when you say or do or you make any gesture that's unconsciously trying to get attention from a friend or a partner, if your partner responds 86% of the time, that relationship will be sustained. I don't know how he got to the exact number 86% of the time, but it's a pretty high level of responsiveness we need for a relationship to be uh, effective. And when Gottman says uh, responding to a bid, it's not really someone saying, look, not looking up from a phone and saying, how was your day? Or, you know, just uh, mumbling a response when spoken to. It's literally responding to a bid for attention is putting down a device, orienting towards a person and literally making that nonverbal, uh, you know, connection. That's what responding to a bid for attention is. If the levels drop below 50%, um, and Gottman found that sometimes it can drop as low as 30%, 33%, eventually those relationships, friendships, uh, even uh, you know, work colleagues, eventually they fall apart. What will happen is we won't be aware of it, but if people, if we stop responding to the bids of attention from somebody else, or if they stop responding to our bids for attention, mounting implicit anger, frustration will build and we won't be aware of why it's building. So eventually we'll pick fights on secondary issues that can't be resolved because the real issue is not the disagreement about some issue like which restaurant we want to go to or which uh, um, or, or our views or opinions about current events. The real underlying issue is that our bids for attention haven't been met. That's why so many friendships and relationships fall apart. Healthy relationships feature this ongoing flow of, of at times rupture and then repair, which means sometimes we're just too stressed out. We're just too caught up in some thought about uh, something that's happened earlier or something that we're worried about. And we might not respond to our friend or partners or roommates or neighbor or whatever, or our work colleagues bid for attention. We'll uh, stay lost in thought. We'll mumble a half response. And that's okay. In fact, in 
childhood that definitely happens but the key to sustaining relationships is that the person then does what's called repair so when a child is not or not uh, paid attention to by a parent who's stressed out eventually the parent seeks out the child makes eye contact establishes physical touch stays attuned and is uh, starts interacting with the child and expressing delight in the child. And that way, children remain secure. And our attachment systems are pretty robust that if somebody really, after failing to respond to bids for attention, then stops, comes to us, and then just sits, maybe uh, asks how we're doing, but then pays attention and really maintains this kind of um, the body language and the orientation that suggests attunement and care and concern, then generally all of the ruptures and attachment damages are erased by repair. Uh, another thing about healthy relationships is that they don't ambush each other with their frustrations or disappointments. One of um, Gottman and other attachment uh, people like Sue Johnson, Herval Hendricks note that the key for healthy friendships and relationships and interactions is when there's something that's bugging us, we don't just start talking about it, we ask, uh, we set a time to discuss it. Healthy couples and friends uh, don't let disappointments completely uh, stay throughout the entirety. They don't push them aside. They don't ambush each other. When something has created a rift, a frustration, a disappointment, they simply say, hey, uh, we'd like to talk about something. When would you be, when would it be okay by you? So there's a mutuality, there's an agreement, but it's not left to fester or pollute the entire relationship, nor is it something that we just decide then and there we're gonna talk about it uh, so we don't ambush others. Now, the concept of mindful communication, while it's very big today and it's expressed in the work of many Buddhist uh, teachers and psychologists, and I'm not the only one rambling on about it, there's a lot of really wonderful people who talk a lot about it from Ajahn Suchito, Tara Bra, Gregory Kramer, etc. But it all uh, goes back to the original teachings of the Pali Canon in Samavaka, Waka, Waka, I think it is, um, which means right speech. And it's uh, part of the Eightfold Path, which is the very foundation of how we act in regards to others and how we comport ourselves if we want to be, for that matter, uh, someone interested or oriented towards Buddha's practice. So the Buddha said, and I'm not going to be able to quote it exactly, but it goes something like, one is well-spoken when speaking, when one speaks truthfully towards a useful end and at the right time. We don't 
use or engage in words such as you don't know what's true, you're wrong, etc. But again, the, the key questions the Buddha suggests we ask is, is this true? In other words, we don't ever interact with someone with the intention of lying, deceiving, manipulating. We, uh, is it useful? And that might also mean, does it need to be said by me? <laughs> uh, useful means that it will in some way help reestablish a bond, or it might be information that we believe will be helpful, uh, but is not meant to simply put someone in their place or uh, cause any harm. And uh, is it the right time? Very often this requires not just feeling this need to immediately speak or to get across the point, but just to ask ourselves, is this person really ready right now to have a dialogue on this? Um, we don't want to push it off forever, but it's definitely worthwhile to bear in mind these three primary uh, concerns. Is it true? Is it useful? And is it the right time? So in contemporary Buddhist approaches to mindful communication, the first thing that we do is we settle and relax, which means we let go or we address the fidgetiness, the busyness, the momentum, I need to get somewhere, I'm, I have to keep to a schedule, I have to get things done. And we we start by just having a nice, relaxed, full series of breaths. We relax our bodies. We uh, soften our bellies. And we get to a place where we can really listen, where we can really be with another person, even if their affects are um, one of resentment, anger, <coughs> grief despair, uh, really uncomfortable uh, affects to be with. Much of my work in counseling re requires me to spend 30, 40, 50 minutes sometimes of an appointment just listening, not interjecting, not uh, offering anything, just sitting and listening as someone discloses their experiences that are, have caused a lot of harm, a lot of pain, and so forth. And so for me to really truly be present, it requires, and to not become overwhelmed, to not, to not be, to not disconnect and be pushed off into my own thoughts, but just to stay present, to stay empathetic, requires me to have a relaxed soothed, comfortable body. If my body is tense and tight, I won't be able to hold, bear witness, stay with another person's affects, and I'll start putting up a wall, or I'll start trying to fix or solve or interject. And that, from the perspective of a Buddhist pastor, is not what I do. So I have to stay physically comfortable. 
there are ways that people sabotage communication before it even gets really underway. We can express condescension if we're thinking, oh, I know this is what this person is doing is not right, or the way they're seeing this in this experience is wrong, then what will happen is implicitly without our conscious awareness, we'll start fidgeting, we'll start losing attention, we'll express through body language and patience. And then the other person will neurocept unconsciously read that we are not no, we are no longer receiving openly without judgment what they're saying, and they will ramp up their emotions, they'll become more frustrated, or they'll give up. And so either way, the dialogue will be sabotaged. So it's essential to be aware of how we're comporting ourselves so that and make sure that we're not internally judging because if we're internally judging what someone is saying, then we are definitely, whether we realize it or not, we're going to signal that. None of us, uh, you know, are capable of withholding affects. Even poker players, professional ones, are actually, studies show, not very good at it. Another thing that sabotages interactions is defensiveness. Uh, we, if we feel attacked or criticized, we might express in, uh, our indignation or the fact that, uh, or we'll, we might uh, protect ourselves by pulling back, by expressing a sense of sh uh, shock, or we might stop listening and rehearse how we're going to defend ourselves. And all of this will be read by the person who's talking to us, they'll see all of these nonverbal cues, and they'll be inclined to either ramp up their accusations to become more harsh, or once again, they'll give up, and no real connection will be established. So it's important when someone is criticizing just to understand what they have experienced and what they're trying to get across. There'll be plenty of time if we absolutely need to defend ourselves, but we don't do it then. We don't interrupt. We just stay present. And then the most harm that can be done is through what's called withdrawing or stonewalling. We give up any attempt to stay present we look away, we pout, we just disconnect, we look sullen. And if that's the case, essentially, uh, not only will the connection have failed, it will actually lead to even greater disruptions in the attachment or friendship bond. So the way we don't automatically go into a withdrawal is by, again, staying physically relaxed, breathing, if, you know, opening up our, our chest and our body, and reminding ourselves that we'll have time to express our own perceptions and needs. So, in a nutshell, it's really important to not get lost in our thoughts about what another is saying. We simply stay present and open 
to what's being conveyed. We maintain an awareness of how we're orienting towards others, and we also maintain an awareness of simply how we're feeling in regards to what's being said. Um, the next step in healing skillful communications is what's called mirroring. And Herval Hendricks, amongst others, suggests that if it's a conflict, that before responding, if we want to regulate and or downregulate the uh, emotional temperature of the exchange, what we do first is we repeat back what we've heard. I think you said, or am I right if I if I say that what you've experienced is that you don't feel heard or prioritized by me or that you feel uh, that I haven't taken you into consideration. Um, and if I get that wrong, could you help me understand what you're expressing? When we take the time to, to not only emotionally mirror, but then repeat back their verbal utterances, you'd be surprised at how quickly people begin to the uh, the the uh, <clears throat> the temperature of the exchange begins to settle very quickly. Human beings really want to have their internal states be uh, mirrored back, primarily non-verbally, but also verbally as well. So it's also helpful to validate where possible. We might not agree with what another has said, but it's still we can validate the, their feelings. You know, given what you shared with me, I, I understand why this is important to you or why you feel hurt. You know, we might not agree that we've done anything wrong, but we acknowledge that from how they've perceived the interactions that that we understand their feelings that makes another person feel much more connected much hurt more heard and it doesn't mean that we're necessarily apologizing or acknowledging that we've done wrong but it does so much in validating what their affects to establishing a bond now before we Mirroring essentially de-escalates tension. So then before we then offer our wisdom <laughs> or our words, we pause and we check in again. Pausing is really, if there's any single action in life that embodies mindfulness and embodies the wisdom of the Dharma, and embodies spirituality. It's the willingness to pause and not um, go with this impulse to at first, because the first impulses we will feel quite often are the oldest, most protective impulses. If in our childhoods we often felt judged or engulfed, or abandoned, or uh, criticized, we'll very often hear that in what other people are saying, and we will just respond defensively. So what are defensive responses? 
One is we'll disconnect. We'll stop listening, uh, of course, during while the other person is speaking. But it, when it comes to our turn to speak, we'll quickly apologize, even though we don't really mean it, or we'll immediately make excuses, or we'll immediately justify our actions, or we'll immediately accuse another of doing the exact same thing that they've accused us of. <laughs> uh, these are classic uh, emotional courtroom uh, defenses. We'll bring up mistakes or bad actions that the other person has done to avoid the issue. We'll go through entire histories to try to uh, change the subject. Uh, we'll tell the person that it's not important. And all of those create attachment wounds. The most effective tool is to simply express what we're feeling, what our experience was of an interaction, but not from a place of trying to justify, simply express what our internal states experiences, what we, what we were what our experience was in the interactions that they've brought to bear with us. So if someone says, uh, you didn't take my request, uh, you didn't treat it as if it was important, rather than say, well, um, uh, you don't hear me when I have important issues, or you've in the past, uh, you, you don't do things that I request or just immediately apologize. Rather than from making an excuse, we simply say, so at the time, what I heard was this, and I understood it to mean that it was something that you wanted to address, but that it wasn't essential. And I felt that it was something that we could address at another time we share internally what we perceived. We express our truth. Um, and it's important, though, to say how we feel as well about what we've heard and what we're experiencing. Um, we're trying to also reflect our needs rather than make truth statements. Truth statements are, I know what really happened, you don't, or you've forgotten what really happened. Expressing needs are simply, okay, moving forward, this is really what's important to me and what's important to you. It's important to go with the flow, not try to steer or set agendas or keep up the timetables. If we feel we know what has to get done or what's most important, we will immediately start conveying a sense of criticism and judgment to the other. And they'll want to either assert their agenda or they'll become impatient, will become impatient. Um, so it's really, these conversations are in many ways, first focusing on disclosing internal states, mirroring back what we've heard, maintaining an orientation towards the other. And they can be like an Ouija board where we start flowing to other 
times and other affects. But in short, the more we engage in these kind of effectual, uh, attuned, mirroring dialogues that are not judgmental, that are open, where we pause, where we are far more focusing on our subjective experience rather than arguing over uh, what we believe has happened, where we note that our experience is subjective and not the what actually happened. It was just our internal experience of it. All of these strategies can be extremely um, beneficial in uh, healing relationships, repairing for uh, wounds and for uh, basically building new trust in our dynamics. So with that, I'm going to actually lead us into a meditation where we're going to practice uh, in our minds, both one, preparing for difficult conversation, uh, how to relax, settle, so that we can hear difficult remarks, and how we check in and uh, with our internal state before expressing ourselves. So thank you for listening. I hope that was in some way helpful. And now I would invite you to find a really comfortable seated position. I'm going to have a sip of water. So let's let go of everything we've just heard. If you want to hear it again, it'll always be on the podcast. So no need to uh, <clears throat> remember it. And just bring your attention to your internal experience, your how you feel right now being in a body what needs attention, what needs to be relaxed. Right now, for me, it's the uh, shoulders need to be a little bit oriented and need to find a more comfortable position for my feet. That Now that's nice. And uh, just finding a nice position for the head, in alignment with the body, whatever feels appropriate. Noting if there's some way we can soften the features, the expressions on our face, and um, It's always nice to have those really relaxing, soothing, long inhalations and exhalations where we get out of the impatient breathing, the breathing that underlies, I need to get all this stuff done in a short period of time where we really open up to 
living in life without a timetable or a schedule. We just settle into the body and offer what it, it whatever it needs. Belly breathing is always really effective as a way to downregulate many of the our nervous systems, many of the monks and nuns I was fortunate to study with often talked about uh, belly breathing is the key to establishing samadhi states of ease and concentration. So breathing into the belly, just feel your belly if you'd like, expand with the in-breath and soften with the exhalation, feeling the energy surging up into the from the belly to the chest with the inhalation and then releasing down into the belly if you like, with the exhalation. Sometimes I imagine I'm breathing literally, the belly is what's inflating with air. And then very slowly softening. And the body is our gateway to the present to ease, to escaping the torrent of thoughts that cause us so much pain and distress, our worries. The fastest way out can be very often just lowering awareness into the body, note what needs to be softened, Releasing any tension in the face, letting the shoulders hang and the arms hang. Finding a comfortable expression on your face. Don't try to force a smile, but whatever expression is available to you that feels most easeful. If the arms are slightly back, thanks to the shoulders, the chest will open up and it'll be easy to have very full, you know, fulfilling, complete breaths. really slowing down. If it's difficult to stay with your internal experience, just listen to the sounds arising and passing around you without picturing what creates the sounds. Just receive the entirety of the 
environment around you, or you can bring to mind an image that's soothing, a place where you feel safe. A beach or a place in the woods or a vast expanse or just a very simple repeated phrase, may I be happy, peaceful, free of stress or an even simpler phrase, I love you, keep going. And we'll just rest for a while in a very receptive awareness, a very kind, compassionate awareness. If any thoughts pull you away, that's not a problem. Just assure them that you'll be available in a little while to pay attention to them. can even want make a note of whatever is so important and then just make the return to the present is relaxing and refreshing so nice complete in breath and out breath finding the most easeful sensation in your direct experience. Relaxing the mind into a sensation in your body or contact sensation or sound or image. And if every time you return to the present, you make it as judgment-free, soothing, then you'll have a way throughout the rest of life to disconnect when thoughts become overwhelming, filled with worry or catastrophizing. You'll have a way to you have practiced disconnecting and returning to the present and what greater gift to yourself.
So at this point, if you'd like to move on to the practice, um, and if you're just pleasantly abiding, that's fine. Uh, but if you'd like to do this kind of uh, visualization exercise, uh, bring to mind a conversation that you've either been putting off or not looking forward to, even perhaps uh, in a some way dreading <clears throat> an interaction with someone who might be angry or aggressive, displeased, pushy. And then imagine if you have a capability of visualizing, some people really struggle to visualize scenes and that's okay, but if you can just visualize this individual sitting in proximity, maybe outdoors or in a coffee shop or someplace where or on Zoom, someplace this conversation might occur. And while you visualize the setting or just open to this idea of this interaction, see if you can soften your belly, keep your body relaxed. Keep your breath as comfortable as you can, your expression impassive, but curious if that's available. And then without being too negatively projecting, imagine based on what you know about this person from past interactions, imagine how they might address you. And if you can, while either imagining their facial expressions, their body language or something they might say, or accuse, just keep your body relaxed as much as you can and note whatever you in this exercise might expect them to discuss or seek agreement or seek the state and then in our mind we can simply even practice what it would be like to mirror back 
without criticizing, judging, defending. It would be like I hear you saying that you feel or that you experienced me as repeat back in her mind without judging what they might state, focusing on acknowledging what they're feeling or what you suspect they might be feeling. And then pause. Check in. How do you feel right now? Stressed or anxious or disappointed or defensive or just note. And just when we're ready, what would be the most constructive way to express what our experience has been? without any excuses or apologies or accusations or bringing up past issues, just what was our, what did we experience? What have we heard that we'll take into account? What do we really need them to know about what we felt or feel right now. Keeping the body relaxed, softening the breath, keeping ourselves in a place where we don't have to, we're not trying to get out keeping ourselves in a state where we're most comfortable. There we have it. That's an example of how we would go about uh, internally preparing and uh, developing some of the tools to have skillful communication. And so whenever you're ready, uh, taking your time, just uh, open your eyes. And thank you for listening, for your practice.